Good morning. Good morning. So happy you're all here today. If you're joining us online, welcome to Heart City Church. I'm Pastor Joel, and I'm hoping that you'll be able to join us in person soon. Today we come to Esther chapter 6. So I invite you to turn in your Bible or on your vices, and we also print it wonderfully in our bulletins. We're about to time travel. We're about to go back to a kingdom long, long ago, far, far away from us, to ancient Persia, 5th century B.C., to a time when God's people are in great danger. An edict to exterminate God's people, the Jews, has been issued in Persia. This is like Hitler's final solution, but the plan was actually to kill every last Jew on a single day. Now, unbeknownst to our self-absorbed king, his Queen Esther was a Jew, which is why Esther's cousin Mordecai has gone to her to ask her to beg the king for their lives. Now, actually, Esther... She didn't have much pull with the king. You see, uh, Persian queens, they have a very short shelf life. We learned that in chapter 1. So Esther said, call for a fast. We need time to seek God so that I might actually be able to receive an audience, get an audience with the king. And if granted that, then mercy and wisdom to win the heart of the king by her pure godly conduct. In chapter 5, Esther received that mercy from the king, and afterwards she invited the king and Haman, by the way, Haman the Horrible, he's the villain behind this edict, invited them both to a special feast. But at that feast, Esther bided her time. She kept mum. She asked them to come to a second feast the very next day. And in chapter 7, next week we're going to see she's going to reveal Haman's plot, she's going to reveal her identity, and she's going to plead for her people. However, we got a chapter in the middle, don't we? Chapter 5 ended with Haman angry at Esther's cousin Mordecai because he would not bow once again. So Haman has stayed up all night building a gallows so that he can hang Mordecai. And first thing in the morning, he plans to go ask permission from the king to hang him. That's where we left off. Mordecai's life is in grave danger and nobody has a clue. In Esther 6, Esther and Mordecai are probably fast asleep right now as the day begins. And all their hopes and prayers are dependent on that feast to come later in the day. But by then, it's going to be too late for Mordecai. I mean, think about it. If Haman is able to convince the king to annihilate an entire race, do you think he's going to have any problem getting the king to off one insignificant servant? One more thing to note. Please listen. Our author to this point and going forward has never once mentioned God in this story. That's a really strange book for a, for, in the Bible to have nothing about God. Total silence. There's no clear answer to why. Lots of arguments. But what we can say is that our author is inviting us to ask these questions. Where are you, God? Where are you? And why do you allow such evil to happen? Maybe you've asked that question. Maybe you're asking that question right now today. God, where are you? If you are good, why did you allow this to happen? Have you ever felt like God is distant and disinterested in our world? 
I'm so glad you're here. Pray with me right now before we enter our text that this God by his spirit will quiet our hearts, quiet our doubts, and open our minds to receive something good and true. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know your word teaches that you are doing far more here and now in this very room than we can possibly comprehend. So I ask and pray that you might help us by the power of your spirit to see that Jesus is near and intimately involved in every detail. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So now hear the word of our God. I'm going to start in chapter 5, verse 14. Then his wife, Haman, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Haman, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has wore, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on a horse through, through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming for him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. And sometimes it's pretty comical. Amen. So now that I've read scripture to you, I'm going to ask you to return the favor. In your bulletin on the other side of our text, we have our July verse to know, Romans 8, 28. I would like you to read it, and then I'll, and I'll read it with you. Let's all quote together, say together, 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I gave us that verse for this month because this is a soft pillow to lay your heads on in a world of anxiety, in a world of the cruel and the crazy. I hope you'll take this soft pillow with you and look at it and study it and remember it every day. This verse is actually teaching us about providence, God's works of providence, his purposeful sovereignty, as I've been talking about, his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Romans 8.28 tells us that God is actively and intimately involved in every event on earth. All things are working together for good. That means God has a plan of action. He's using everything even the terrible and the tragic that's on your mind from this last week, to bring forth a greater good for those who love him. That's how great our God is. And I think that Esther 6 may be the second greatest proof in the Bible that God can use all things, all ingredients for our good and his glory. I mean, look at the ingredients we find in chapter 6. You have a failed conspiracy, a forgetful king, incessant insomnia, an ancient audiobook and a proud politician. Throw all that into a mixing bowl, okay? And then put it in the oven at 350. What do you think you're going to get? Anything delightful? I mean, what good could be produced when you mix together failure, forgetfulness, a sleepless sultan, a boring book, and a narcissistic nobleman? <laughs> this doesn't sound like a recipe for anything great. But you see, God is the master mixer. Providence teaches us that God is in all the details, even the malevolent and the mundane, no matter what. And we need to get this. If you don't get this, you are going to be anxious about all the evil actors out there. You're going to be angry about all the horrible events you see. If we're going to live by faith as we live in a fallen world, we have to understand God's providence, that his hand is in everything. Another thing we need to understand is that most of human history is not God stepping in with big and powerful, huge events. Yes, God created all that we see out of nothing by the word of his power. Yes, God split the Red Sea so his people could pass through. Yes, God rained fire from heaven in Elijah's day. There are periods in the Bible where God's presence is quite palpable. But most of the Bible history is like Esther's day. Most of human history is like our day, like Esther's day where there are few to no supernatural events. Most of human history is God's unseen hand at work in all things. And God's preferred instruments are things like the inconsequential, the unimpressive, the insignificant. And God likes to use insomnia, forgetfulness, regret, and even pride to bring about his perfect purposes. Our big point today is that God takes the weak, the worst, and the wicked, to bring forth the bold, the best, and the beautiful. And listen, if you have eyes of faith and patience to play the long game, you're going to discover that God is not distant and God is not disinterested. God is a deep in the detail of the everyday, day-to-day -day stuff that you deal with. He's working all things together for the good of those who love him. All things. Can I get an amen? Amen. 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 As we take that in, you're going to find a soft pillow you can lay your head on every night and find peace. 
You're also going to find the day-to-day routines. You're going to be able to do them in trust and hope. What's our alternative? I argued last week that Haman's biggest problem is he's opposed to providence. He denies God. What is he doing? He's up all night long, anxious and angry. That's where we left off. With Haman angry at Mordecai because he wouldn't bow after the feast. So he went and whined to all of his friends after a big, you know, blowhard party where he said all the great things about himself. And they like, well, build a gallows. A 75-foot gallows. First thing in the morning and get permission to hang Mordecai. Then you can be securing your status and then you can go to Esther's second feast with great joy. Friends, there is no rest for the wicked. I'd have to ask Doug, but I assume, Doug, constructing a 75-foot-tall gallows is an all-night project? Yeah, he's nodding yes. So here we have chapter 6. The last nail has just been pounded in. And Haman, he hurries, you know, into the house. He washes his face. He grabs his robe. His wife has made dinner or breakfast. And he's, no, no, honey, I don't have time. I just need a coffee to go. I need a coffee to go. I have got to get to the king right away. We want this first thing on his agenda today got to get Mordecai executed. And thus begins our first point, a chain of coincidences, a chain of coincidences. Let me reread one to three. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found how, written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. Albert Einstein once said, Coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. Coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. And it's fitting here in this series of coincidences, one by one, something's happening here even though God is not mentioned begins with the double insomnia of the two most powerful men on the planet. Haman arrives at the outer court, heavily caffeinated. You know, he's sitting here, Last night I couldn't get to sleep at all. And he does no idea that the king inside is also singing the fifth dimension. Okay? Has no clue. Our author indicates also this incident of insomnia is not a normal thing for the king. He says, on that night, kind of like Haman's earlier, on that day. You know, you'd think after having a big feast, which he just had at Esther's, and he was drinking, I never sleep better. <laughs> I never sleep better. What caused this? What's that? Oh, she might have, maybe, maybe Esther had Chinese on the menu and, you know, he's got indigestion. That doesn't mean anything. That means that God's hand was on the menu too. God is in control of all things. So here he is, Ahasuerus, can't get to sleep, and he does what many of us do when we're trying to get drowsy. Actually, the king has access to audiobooks, which nobody else does in this time. He has a couple of talking heads. Go start reading to him. He says, go to that shelf over there and pull me off one of the most boring books. Yes, the Chronicles. Those are basically the minutes of all the actions taken from year to year. This is what we Presbyterians like so much, right, Mark? Yeah, we're infamous for it. It is boring stuff. Boring stuff. In fact, a couple times I've agreed to be on denominational committees that go over minutes. I don't do it for fun. 
I do it, yes, because there's a need and also because they entice me by offering to pay my GA registration if I do it, okay? The first hour reading these minutes, not so bad. Second hour, I start to get really bored and the print starts to get blurry. By hour three, all of us are sucking down coffee and making runs back and forth to the bathroom, okay? You're reading names and events. That's what's going on in this scene, right? That you hardly know or remember. That's the scene. Wah, 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 wah. And then suddenly the king says, wait, hold on, hold on. Back up, read that again. And they read, read this incident about Big Than and Teresh, two men who used to guard the threshold right by the king. And they had tried five years ago. They had a plot to assassinate the king. And it just so happened Mordecai was nearby on that very time and overheard about the plot. He reported it and saved the king's life. And the king says, hold on, guys, hold on. I remember that incident. That, that was a close call. Now, pause there just for a minute. Did Big Than go up to Teresh that just one day and say, you know, buddy, I've got an idea what we can do today. Let's fulfill God's sovereign purposes for history. No. Big Than and Teresh decided we want to kill the king. It was their own actions based on their own feelings and thoughts. But friends, there are no incidents, no incidents in God's world. There are only coincidences. Each of us are responsible for what we choose to do, but every time it's co-opted by God. God is always sovereign over every incident that we initiate. That includes what we choose to do when we can't get to sleep and we're singing the fifth dimension. What a coincidence that on the night Mordecai's execution is being planned, the king can't sleep and chooses to read a book off the shelf. Just so happens to be this particular book and they just so happen to read this particular session about Mordecai having saved his life. And the king's interest is perked. Hey, what way did we honor this fine fellow Mordecai? That was a close call. By the way, for those of you who weren't with us back in chapter 2, Mordecai got a bum deal here. I mean, five years ago, imagine the scene. All his co-workers singing, For he's a jolly good fellow, for he's a jolly good fellow. Man, Mordecai, you saved the king's life. Man, how did he reward you? Did he give you a big bonus? Mordecai's like, I was hoping to be in the running for employee of the month, you know, but <laughs> I didn't even get in the fruit of the month club. I didn't even get a card. But lunch break's over, guys. I got to get back to the king's gate. Ever been slighted? Ever felt unappreciated? Unnoticed? How did you respond to that? Did you kind of tend towards Haman with anxiety when he got slighted? Anger? You end up losing sleep over it? Or did you do like Mordecai? Say, okay, it's in God's hands and keep doing what is right, regardless of whether I get any recognition or reward. Maybe Esther 6 is here today before you to help us rethink how we come at life and its circumstances Maybe we're going to begin to trust that God is in all the details of everything he's doing. Because the king's failure here is part of a coincidence chain that ends up saving Mordecai's life. And Mordecai has no clue. Morty has no clue what's going on. He's probably fast asleep right now. While God uses the king's forgetfulness and his regret to save his life. <laughs> what ingredients, right? The king says, what great thing did we do for Morty? Because he saved my life.
how did we reward his loyalty? And the guy kind of bites his lip. Uh, we didn't do anything. The king stands up. He's wide awake. He's now mortified over Morty because he didn't help him. Somebody needs to help him rectify this situation. Who could it be that could help him? Verse 4. Who is in the court? <coughs> now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. Two sleepless men with Morty on the mind. (laughs) And each is completely clueless as we start this very comical scene. Esther 6 is not only proof of God's unseen hand, but I think it's proof is his supreme humor. <laughs> Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And read Psalm 2 later, where God from heaven laughs at the rulers of this age who set themselves against his purposes. And we get to laugh at this next scene. We'll call one titled, The Irony of Arrogance. The Irony of Arrogance. Verse 6. So Haman came in. And the king said to himself, What should be done to the man, the king, whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Who would the king delight to honor? More than me. You're so vain. You probably think this song is about you. Don't you just love this scene where these two are like talking right past each other? And none of this happens, by the way, if the king doesn't leave out one detail. In verse 3, the king asked, what honor has been bestowed on Mordecai? In verse 6, he asked, what should be done to the man, generically? That one missing detail becomes the running joke of this whole scene. Six times we hear about the man whom the king delights to honor. If the king says Mordecai, Haman is not planning a ticker tape parade. We get to see why it's true that pride comes before destruction. Pride comes before destruction. The king, uh, also think about it, he puts off revealing the identity of the man. It's all the more funny because Haman should really appreciate this. Because in chapter 3, Haman convinced the king to pass an edict against the Jews while conveniently leaving out their identity. (laughs) He's becoming a victim of his own game. This story is just hilarious. Now we get to see the arrogant Haman about to be hoist on his own petard, to quote Shakespeare. I know what you're thinking, Mark. Joel, you don't know what a petard is. Actually, you'd be right, but if I, I looked it up yesterday. <laughs> a petard is a pre-modern explosive device, a container filled with powder, right? Gunpowder. Perhaps you'd light a fuse, you know, with it. So Haman has just lit a fuse. He's built by, you know, the gallows for Mordecai. But we see what, Morde- what Haman doesn't see happening here. It's like those cartoons, you know, with Wiley Coyote, and he's always, yes, stalking the roadrunner and everything. And he sees, you know, his prey. He lights the fuse. He closes his eyes, you know, and everything. And then it's never a bird blast. So it's coyote combustion. It's just over and over again. That's what's happening here. Haman hears the king delights to honor a man. And Haman, he's forgot all about Mordecai at this moment. He turns inward. Remember we talked about this last week? Instead of outward. And we actually hear for the first time in Esther what somebody's actually thinking. There's no motives anywhere in Esther other than here. Actually, you hear better. In the Hebrew, it says what he was thinking in his heart. What's going on in here? He thinks he is the man. And you see how Haman wants to be king. 
This is our problem from Genesis 3. We're always seeking to be like God, and that's the closest Haman can imagine. He wants to be king. So he says to the king after the question, for this man, wink, wink, I know who you're talking about here. <laughs> Get your royal robe. Oh, your stallion. And one of those fabulous crowns in one of the hat boxes back there. I like the one in the red, you know. And dress up, you know, the <coughs> hey man, uh, and have him paraded before the whole city. And have a noble official do all this, proclaiming, thus it shall be done to the man the king delights to honor. See, Haman, he's like a kid before Santa, you know, just told Santa everything he could ever want. All he needs is now for the king to do the big reveal. And you have to also just love how the king waits to the last moment for the reveal. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse. You see, Haman just do as just as you said and do so. Right now, Haman is preparing to act surprise for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. I think this is the biggest mind blow of Haman's life. <laughs> and the irony is he's been thinking about Mordecai all night until he had the chance to stroke his pride. We can now see how easy it is, easy for God to overthrow the arrogant. And he will. This is a warning. When you look out for number one, that's what our culture is constantly preaching to us. God exalts the humble and he humbles the proud. Our scene ends with the king saying to a shell-shocked Haman, why are you still standing here? What are you waiting on? Leave out nothing you've mentioned. And the king dismisses him, convinced that he's just righted a wrong. And Haman walks out just completely crestfallen, shaken, wondering what in the world just happened. Now, if you like that scene, you're going to love the last one, which I'm going to entitle Reversal and Ridicule. Reversal and Ridicule. Mordecai is sitting there. Imagine him faithfully in the gate like he does every single day. Probably silently praying, Oh God, at this feast to come later, will you please give Esther favor so that our lives will be saved? And then he hears the palace door slam shut. Bam! And he sees Haman coming out with a scowl, marching right towards him on a mission with a thundercloud over his head. What do you think Mordecai's thinking? <laughs> Been a good run. And he looks up and starts singing, Goodbye, blue sky. Bye-bye. That's what's going on. And then the most remarkable reversal. <laughs> Haman stands him up. This enemy of his. And he starts dressing Mordecai up like the king. And then he says, Mordecai, up on this brilliant stallion. Oh, hold on. I didn't put the crown on your head. Can you imagine Mordecai's jaw dropping as he's led out into the city square? Better, try to imagine being a Susa citizen. Your mouth would be agape at what you're seeing. Isn't that Haman exalting a Jew? Didn't the king just order those guys were going to be exterminated? If you're a Persian citizen, you're like, what in the world is going on behind those closed palace doors? I'm glad we in America never have to scratch our head about what our leaders are doing. Imagine if you're a Jew, <laughs> seeing Mordecai now in these royal robes. It might trigger a memory of David. Remember, 
Saul had an extermination edict out for David, and yet Jonathan took his robes, his royal robes, and put them on David. It was a sign that David was about to be exalted, and Saul was going to fall, because David was the man whom God delighted to honor. But I know I'm looking at you guys, and I think you'd rather imagine Haman the Horrible being humbled. (laughs) Here he is, walking through the city square. His cell phone rings. Hey, Zeresh, what is it? You're trying to get to the store, but there's a traffic jam, and oh yeah, well, yeah, I know what's going on there. I, that that's me. What am I doing? Oh, uh, I'm leading Mordecai the Jew through the palace uh, or through the city gates, you know, and I'm parading him in front of everyone. Yeah, I have no idea what's going on right now, dear. What's that? Yeah, yeah. Okay, hold on. Thus it shall be done. Hold on, dear. I've got to go. I'm, this guy keeps poking me. I got to say it again. I'll talk to you later. Mordecai is really enjoying this, I bet. Mordecai's like, hey, why'd you stop? I like that part. Say it again. Say it again. Thus it shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor. Say it again. Say it louder. Well, that's probably just me. I like this ridiculing of Haman. I do think Mordecai enjoyed the reversal, but he remains humble. Verse 12. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. Huh. See his humility? But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. See the difference? Mordecai's head's no bigger after his exaltation. He returns humbly to the king's gate. And he knows that God's in all the details of this. Continue to trust God with his life. He trusted if you will simply live faithfully for God, seeking to help others, if you're living outward and upward, you'll find that God doesn't forget. He will not forget one cold cup that you've offered someone of water. And he will reward you in the end. And if you want to live with a big head, he has a reliable way of rewarding you as well with ridicule. We see Haman running home with his head covered in shame, but no comfort there. Zeresh has the same certainty. There's irony here. The same certainty Mordecai had in chapter 4. God will deliver his people and destroy all who come against them. And she tells him this. And Haman doesn't even get to say, Zeresh, how could you? Because he's out the door. They're ushering him off to Esther's feast. This is the pace of the wicked. They're always hurrying and anxious, trying to control things in life, or they're being hurried. We live in a pretty fast culture, don't we? Something to ponder. Something to ponder. That's another sermon. But we're not in a hurry. We're going to wait till next week to figure out what Further ridicule and reversal are going to result in chapter 7, but I think we can see where this is going. I'll close with some application. We began with these questions at the beginning. Where are you, God? Where is God? And we saw that God is present and doing so much more right here, right now, than we could possibly know. And friends, you need to thank God for that. 
you need to thank God. Gratitude is actually a cure for anxiety in a world filled with many dangers that could take you out like that. Let me help you. Friends, you are all in grave danger. Far more than Fox or CNN are going to tell you. Way more danger than what they're going to convince you. You have no idea how fragile your condition is. We're like those flowers that rise up in the summer and then we're gone. There are dangers you don't even know about. Like Mordecai, he, he didn't know his head was on the chopping block. But he could continue to sleep and do his routine. Why? Because Mordecai has his head on the soft pillow of providence. God's got this. He knew God's unseen hand was in all the details of life. If God's eye is on the sparrow, how much more is his eye on you, those who love him? He's working all things together for your good and for his glory if you love him and are called according to his purpose. Ask yourself, how many times has God protected your life that you didn't even know about? Ever caused you to leave a few minutes late because something happened and then you missed out on a horrible accident? Or brought you to a safe space just in time before something awful happened? And I'll ask you, my not-yet-Christian friend, what chain of coincidences has brought you here today so that you might finally trust him? Your arrival here, the reason you're sitting here today is because of God. That's how God normally works. I did not become a convinced Christian because I saw the St. Joe River turn to blood or saw a pillar of fire in the sky or witnessed some supernatural event. It was a chain of coincidences that seemed insignificant at the time and unconnected. Death of a loved one, a chance meeting, a job. And now I view those as God entering into the details, ever directing my steps. And God is here today doing the same for me and doing the same for you. The question is, will you choose to be with him as he is with you? That's the question. Will you choose to be with him as he is with you? And I'll close with addressing the problem of why does God allow evil? Why does God permit evil? This is a hard one for me this week. I've seen one of the most evil things I've ever seen. And I don't have a full answer. And none of us will. Don't let anybody say, I got the answer to this, till the end of history. But what we see in Esther 6 is that even though we can't understand evil now, God allows it because he uses it. He exploits evil to save his people. That's what we're seeing. God allows temporary evil for for eternal salvation in the end. He uses it. He exploits it. And Esther 6, I mentioned, is at best only the second greatest proof of God's exploitation of evil to save his people. The greatest proof is Jesus Christ and his cross. Even though Jesus was entirely innocent, he was nailed to a cross, raised up before all the people to see, and he didn't simply just receive judgment. Friends, he was annihilated by it, assailed by hell, by evil. The mystery of the cross is that every ounce of this world's evil was directed at Jesus, the innocent Son of God. And God used that to defeat evil once for all in the resurrection from the dead. That is the great reversal. The only hope we have, and we don't preach resurrection enough, that is the great reversal that gives us all hope that one day we're going to be part of a new creation in new bodies with new souls and perfected in glory. The cross is why we can know all things work together for good in the resurrection of Jesus Christ.
What's more, Jesus, the Son of God, entered into our world and experienced the worst so that we know that no matter what we face, God goes before us and God is with us. We're about to sing that. That means we're never, ever, ever alone. And we can praise our God until that wonderful day when you'll be brought before him and you're going to discover you're dressed in royal robes and you're given a crown. And you're going to be there in your glorious eternal home for all of eternity. And then it will all make sense. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful story that helps us to see that you are close. You are near. You're in this room right now. Our Lord Jesus is our worship leader walking up and down the aisles, laying his hands on us and touching us that we might know his love. I pray that no one will leave here without recognizing that you love us, you care for us, and you want us to put our full hope and trust in you. If we're far from you right now, God, I pray that we'll begin to run towards you, especially if we're in horrible circumstances or situations. May we trust that you actually can work these things out for good. And Lord, we ask and pray that uh, when we leave here, we'll go out giving you thanks and praise with gratitude for all things that come our way. It doesn't mean they're good things, but it does mean that you're going to work them out for your glory and our good. And for this, we give you thanks and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.